Good morning, Redeemer. Good morning. For those of you keeping score, we are in Mark chapter 8, verse 21 through 30. And I'm going to read those for us now before we get started. I would like to just take a moment, though, and thank Jared for last week. Thank you, Jared. You're also a keeper, just like that song. Starting in verse 21. And Jesus said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the revelation of your son in the flesh. We thank you that men laid hands on him and ate with him and walked with him and listened to him, and drew near to him. And that those men wrote down their story, Lord God, so that we, too, could see and draw near and walk with your Son. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for this time, Lord God, to to draw near to you, to be renewed in you. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word, you would open our hearts and our minds, and that you would do the work that only you can do. And amen. This is the part of Mark that we're getting into here where it's, there really is just a ton of repetition. There really is. And, and I'm with Peter. Uh, as long as I'm in the flesh, I'm going to keep reminding you of the, these things. I'm also with Paul. It's not hard for me, <laughs> and it's good for you. But this is a part of the story where it's not going to really be that different from some of the things that we've already heard. So, newsflash. Okay. The opportunity for this to get a little dry, to get a little boring, is there. And it's a real temptation. I thought that several times. I was like, well, when I first read the text, I was like, okay, well, I mean, they say he's Christ. That's new. That's nice. Otherwise, he's at what? He's walking around. He's doing miracles. He's arguing with people. They don't understand him. You're like, that sounds like the last 37 sermons. <laughs> but what I, what, what, you know, to make things new, to make things fresh, what, what I like about Mark is when you really start to get down into it, if, if anyone in here ever wants to be a storyteller, I would say you study Mark very thoroughly. This man knows how to tell a story. What I like is that the story he's telling is true. We can all get behind that. But man, he's telling it so well. He's telling it so well. Mark has put the story of the blind man receiving his sight and of the blind disciples gaining their insight together. He's put them together. These are not two separate stories. The way the language reads is you're supposed to go from directly from 
hey, they didn't understand, to he heals a blind man, to he heals a bunch of blind men. And he does the exact same process with the blind man as he does with the disciples. Mark is creating a climate of tension, which can be resolved only by the confession of Jesus' identity. This is a tension that the, that the gospel stories bring to our lives. This is a tension that the Lord God brings into our lives. We have got to deal with who he is. All along, right? What has he been doing? He's been doing the very things that God said he was going to come and do in Isaiah 35. And all along, what, what is the question? Who are you and where did you come from? Why and, and what happens? Nobody gets it. Nobody gets it. Except a few people. And what happens in the lives of those few people who do get it, who come to him and say, yes, I, I want you. I want to be near you. I want to see you. I want to hear you. I want to follow you. What happens in the lives of those people? What goes on in the hearts of the disciples? Those people who just don't get it. Where did he come from? Who is he? I don't know. So what we have here is <laughs> Jesus has, it's not just a Shazam moment. Any of us in this room who were, who were um, converted later in life, who had what in a sense could be a Shazam moment, we know, we know that it didn't transform everything about us. Anyone who's been converted, you know more now than you did then, even if it was last week, even if it was last year, right? And the further we go back, the more we're like, man, I did not get it. Now, why is that? Why is that? Right? We want the Shazam. Man, give me the Shazam. Just flip the switch, baby, and I will be like an upright saint, and I will just love everybody, and I will love Jesus, and it will be great. Yes. <laughs> now, unless you're converted three minutes before you die, that never happens, right? Very few people are converted and go straight to full glory. The rest of us, the glory path that we're on is long and bloody and difficult. And that's what Mark is talking about here. The way that he tells these stories, he's telling everyone in this room's story, all of us. Now, after this recognition, after this moment, right, where P Peter, on behalf of everybody, finally says, okay, you're, you're the Messiah. After that, this whole gospel changes. Everything and the tone of it changes, the kinds of things Jesus does changes, the kinds of things he says changes, the kind of reactions he gets begin to change. After this recognition, there is a dramatic change in tone throughout the second half of the gospel of Mark. The focus becomes Jesus, the suffering son of man, the Messiah, the Lord. Once they put it out there that he's the Christ, what he says is, okay, now I'm going to show you what kind of Christ. I'm going to tell you what kind of Christ. I'm, not, I'm no longer going to do it just in parables where it's a mystery. I'm going to tell you and I'm going to show you what kind of Christ I am. And now these two stories, what do we have? The blind man and the blind men. First, it gives us the setting, and then it gives us a partial seeing, and then it gives us a fuller seeing, and then there is this moment where Jesus says, be quiet about it. Jesus is the one who opens the eyes of the blind, whether they're spiritually blind or physically blind. If there are closed eyes, the only person who can open them is Jesus. This is what is called an acted parable of the miracle of faith. The miracle visually demonstrates the spiritual malady of the disciples. Right? It's like a giant red arrow. What is happening here? 
Jesus is healing them through a process. Not at all at once, but a process. This is what he wants us to see. Unlike previous miracles, it happens in multiple stages, and this is the crucial detail. A maturing revelation, a growing comprehension, a gradually increasing insight, a fuller confession comes in stages. This is the nature of the Christian life. There are other similarities in these stories. The privacy of the healing here parallels the privacy of the enlightenment that opens to the twelve when they are alone with Jesus, right? What does he do? He takes this blind man and he takes him aside away from the crowds. What precedes this is Jesus taking the disciples aside. We're going to get into the longest stretch here where crowds are practically meaningless in the story. It's Jesus and his disciples again and again and again. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ is a private thing between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus foretelling of his death and resurrection three times is private between himself and the disciples. The only time a crowd is present is when he casts out the demons that the disciples cannot, but there, they're just sort of a background like a tree. They don't even factor into the story. Jesus, his discourse on humility is a private message between himself and the disciples. The dialogue about non-disciples who perform miracles. Everything that's coming in 9 and into 10, it's exactly this. Jesus is taking them aside. He wants to see how much they see. He wants to know how much they know. And that's how these parallels go much, much deeper than we realize. It's not a random detail that Jesus takes this blind man aside. This is what he does to blind men. He comes to them personally, and he takes them aside. The governing rhetorical pattern of the remainder of chapter 8 and 9 is intimate, and it is personal, and it is pedagogical, which is a $50 word for for teaching. It just rhymed with the other word, so that's why I chose it. It's intimate, it's personal, and it's pedagogical. Jesus is not just about crowds now. He's a, he, he, he wants to get down to brass tacks, and he wants to do it one-on-one. Jesus is going to take his disciples aside, and in a multi-stage and intimate interaction, he is going to open their eyes like he did the blind man's. Now, let's look at these stories. Chapter 8, verse 22, this is what it says. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. It is clear from these words, brought and begged, that as in other miracles, the faith of people who are interceding is having an effect on what Jesus does. I think we need to stop and we need to think about this. It says in James that the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Why does Jesus stop and turn to this particular individual? Because men brought him to Jesus and begged Jesus to heal him. Right? We, right? we think it's Shazam. We think Jesus just goes out and willy-nilly saves whoever he's going to save, however he's going to save them, whatever he's going to save them, and it's just sort of this mysterious process like sunshine. It just happens. But in, in this man's life, he saved because the people who love him dragged him there and begged Jesus to save them. Please give him his sight. Well, I thought it was, you know, faith alone. I thought his faith alone is what this matter is what matters. Yeah, but the faith of the of the people of God availeth much. This is why we have prayer. This is why he te- why why does God need us to pray to him? Does he not know? Is are there thing are we telling him things that he does not know? No. But what he wants is is what he wants us to love God and he wants us to love our neighbor. 
He wants, he wants us to care about the people in our lives. And there is nothing more caring and more loving than praying for them. I found out after I was converted that for years, years, someone who I barely knew was praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying for me. And I believe very much that those prayers went, were heard. Otherwise, why? Right? Nobody cared about me living in my mom's basement without a job in my early 20s, drinking my life away. Nobody cared. Well, my mom cared. <laughs> she uh, usually wasn't home. And, and I mean, actually, you just made me think of something, Steve. I, this is Augustine's mother, Monica. You got, have you guys heard the story of her? She prayed and prayed and prayed that her son would be converted. She prayed and prayed and prayed. And she would go up to the church, and she was constantly bugging the bishop. She's like, please go talk to my son, tell my son, reach my son, get my son. And at one point, one of these, these bishops that she just would not leave alone said, listen, God, listen, lady, listen, God would never turn a deaf ear to these tears. It's impossible. If, if he would turn a deaf ear to the way that you are crying out on his behalf, there is no God. He was that emphatic about it. And what did, what did Monica see just before she died? Augustine came to believe. This, this is the power of prayer, and that's what's going on here. These men love this guy so much that they're willing to carry him to Jesus and beg Jesus to save him. I think there's a great deal for us to think about. This is one of those things. You, what do you leave out in a sermon? I didn't want to leave this out, but this could have been the whole sermon. <laughs> we could have done this, this whole section in four weeks. Who do you know that needs to be brought to Jesus? Who do you need to go on their behalf and beg him to save them? Well, Mike, I've been praying for years. I don't know what you're talking about. Keep praying. God will not turn a deaf ear to to the prayers of his saints, to the tears of his saints. He won't. He never has. But we go on with the story. We go on. Verse 23 through 25. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, uh, opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus is not seeking to please or to wow large crowds. He is not seeking to be known as a wonder worker. He doesn't want to use people as a spectacle. Right? He's not one of those preachers who has the front row, right? Oh, bring all the invalids down in front. And I'm going to walk around smacking them with my shirt because my shirt has healing powers. Have you seen these t- TV evangelists? They make a spectacle, a spectacle as much as they can, right? Because the, the bigger the spectacle, the more money coming through the door. Jesus is not this way. This is not what he wants. It's not what he's wanted through the whole gospel. He doesn't want everyone just coming to him like he's some sort of magician waving his wand, just fixing things. He's not a spiritual handyman. That's not what he does. But what he does is take the man by his hand and take him privately aside and and, and spend as much time as he needs touching him as many times as he needs to heal him. That is what Jesus is about. This pattern can be seen. There was a deaf man earlier that he took the deaf man aside. As I said there, the guy, that deaf guy, is used to being passive. He's used to being loud. He's used to being stared at. And what Jesus didn't want to do with that guy was make him a spectacle. 
Jesus works relationally. He draws us aside, and drawing near to us, he makes a personal connection in order to heal us. Beyond this, the restoring of sight to a blind person among the mixed population of Bethsaida would have led to the type of false veneration that Jesus constantly avoided, because in the past, what happens? As soon as the crowd gets wind of what he can do, the crowd gets so big and so obnoxious, it prevents him from preaching. More crowds gather to have him heal them than gather to hear him preach, and that's not what he wants. Now, let's look at this miracle for a moment here, because he, he wants to save this guy. He loves the people who brought the man to him, and because he loves them and because he loves him, he's willing to take him aside, even though he's very busy, and spend whatever time he needs to save him, to heal him. But there are interesting things going on here. Jesus questions the man regarding whether his action has been effective. Do you see anything? The explicit reference to only partial healing, I can actually see people, but they look to me like trees walking around. That's very odd. The laying on of hands a second time, resulting in complete restoration of sight, I see everything clearly. The vivid progression from verse 24 to 25 expresses something of the blind man's excitement and intense involvement. Right? Jesus doesn't just climb a tree, look around this giant crowd, and just shazam heal the guy. He takes him aside, and what happens? There's this back and forth between the two of them. Jesus is interested in healing him. The man's interested in being healed. And so here they are. Imagine. Imagine how busy he is. And he's in Gentile territory, standing there talking to a blind man. Now, right? You run in a church. You run in a ministry. It seems like there's more important, right? Come on, Jesus. You have more important things to be doing than standing over there talking to that blind guy. But it's not more important there, there aren't more important things to Jesus. This is what he, he, right? Everybody wants him to care about the Romans. They want him to care about what? They want him to care about the temple, and they want him to care about politics, and they want him to care about this, and they want him to care about that. And he does, but he never cares about those things, forgetting, as we heard in Isaiah 35, what? The one anxious heart. The one pair of eyes, that, right? Jesus, this world, there's big problems. Come and save and heal the big problems. And he's like, no, I want to heal this one set of eyes. Now, doesn't that on some level seem like a waste? Right? I mean, come, you're Jesus. First off, I don't know why it takes you twice. You're Jesus. You gave the guy the ability to, you, you gave him eyes. You created them. You could just, and boom, he sees. Why is it taking two stages? If Jesus wanted to, Sitting on a mountain, eating a fish sandwich, he could simply say, all the blind people in this world are now healed, healed. He could do that. But what is his ministry? Is that his ministry? All those blind people out there would never come to see him personally, know him personally. The first thing that they, when they opened their eyes, wouldn't be him that they saw. And that's not what he wants. He wants to go and he wants to get the people one by one. I see, but not clearly. I see, but not clearly. Why does Jesus have to ask the guy if it worked? Uh, well, you know, I'm the Messiah. I can make waves stop, and I can walk on water, and I'm not sure, did that work? Right? What is going on? <laughs> it's like the creation. People argue about how long the creation took. My question is, why did it take him six regular days? How come it didn't take him six seconds? Right? Because if God wants to make everything, there's clearly a point out of doing it in six days. It's not how did he do it, you know, it's the opposite of what everyone thinks. I'm surprised that he didn't just blow and everything come into creation in an instant. 
Why, is, why does God do things in stages this way? Most of our conversions, our salvation wasn't sudden and miraculous, but prolonged through painful stages. Painful stages. And what? And what? We're still going through them. If I asked everyone in this room right now, do you see? Did it work? Did your baptism work? Right? Did this, is the service working? You're like, well, I believe. Help my unbelief. And this is exactly how we all live. Everyone in this room is this blind guy. At each stage, Jesus takes each of us aside and asks, do you see now? Did it work? And our answer is always, I see, but only partially. I believe, but only partially. So he takes us further aside, and he touches us, and he heals us again, and he asks, do you see? And then he does it again, and then he does it again. Verse 26, and he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Now, prophets usually present the healed people to their families, right? Because they got to show everybody that I'm actually a true prophet. Jesus doesn't care. In the Old Testament, you always, hey, where's, where's the crowds? We got to find a crowd. I just healed this guy. Clearly, God is with me. We need to make sure that I, I'm the real prophet, not the prophets of Baal. Come on, let's go down to the temple and let's show everyone. Jesus is like, shh, just please go home. Because he's not into fanfare. He knows that it's, it, it's very difficult for him to do the things that he wants to do if the crowds are all coming to him to wave his magic wand. But he doesn't have ego. There's no ego here. It's between him and the blind man. He says, go home. Just go home. We're going to see this come back around. We go on to verse 27 now to this second story. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people Say that I am. Now, Jesus led his disciples 25 miles from Bethsaida. 25 miles is the, is the distance. But, what, so, but 25 miles, you don't just you know, get up and walk 25 miles in a few minutes. But what is Mark doing with these stories? Did you know that it was 25 miles? I didn't know it was 25 miles. In fact, I, I had a hard time believing it. it was that far. I had to look at a map, and I was like, hey, it is that far. So why does it seem like they're just like on their way and he just says this, right? Because he wants us to put these stories, two pieces of bread on our sandwich. This is what he wants. 25 miles. Now, this town is quite something. It had ancient time, it had in ancient times been called Peneus in order, in honor of the god Pan. Have you guys ever heard of the god Pan? Peter Pan? Pan is actually, I, I, I have heard of Pan, but I never heard of Pan in the Middle East. I've heard of Pan in England, because Pan is actually this god that lives in the forest. He's mischievous. He shows up in Shakespeare at some point. But apparently, this Pan at one point was pretty popular, because if they have him up in England, if they've got him down in the Middle East, that's actually, you know, you're a well-known no-god at that point. Not a lot of gods have been that well-known. But this town that they're in had once been dedicated to this god Pan, in addition, it had previously been a site where the god Baal had been worshipped. Now, what it is, now there's, now there's no Baal temple, there's no Pan temple. There's actually, the reason it has Caesar in its name is because there is a temple there to the cult of Caesar. This is where they go and they sacrifice things in honor of Caesar who is a god. And so Jesus leads them 25 miles, he takes them aside 
and he takes him into the midst of all these temples to know gods. And this is where he asks them where people, who do people say I am? Now, why did he lead them there? Why didn't he lead them up to the temple mount? So when they were done, they could all sacrifice some, some goats or something and have a meal. Why does he lead them in the midst of a bunch of no-gods? That's odd, isn't it? Pan, Baal, Caesar. We see real divinity. We see, indeed, a divinity come in the flesh, encountering the claims of emperors who identify themselves as gods, walking upon the earth. Paradoxically enough, Jesus, the true son of God, wants to be known as what? The son of man. Caesar, who's the son of man, wants to be what? Known as the son of God. Well, that's it's the opposite. The real God doesn't... He wants to be known as... Yeah. Caesar, you, you're a punk, Caesar. They really were this way. I mean, everybody knew the Caesar when he was a little kid, and he was a snot-nosed little punk. And then he grows up, and he, you know, he has other people conquer some lands for him. He gets, inherits a bunch of land, and then he suddenly thinks everybody's got to start sacrificing goats to him because he's somebody. And here Jesus is, who is actually somebody, and all he wants to be known as is what? The Son of Man. Who here actually would rather prefer... Right? To be the son of God. Right? That's a label I love to use because that's what Jesus has made us and that's what we go with. But, but the humility here, right? This is what he's cueing us into. Jesus has come as Lord over against every principality and power, idol and adultery. He is the head. He is the high king. He is the bridegroom. He is the light and the life of the world who supersedes every other authority and loyalty. Now think of Mark's original audience. They were Christians where? In Rome, meeting in catacombs. Who ha- Some of them had lost eyes. Some of them had family members who had been eaten by lions. Why? Because they were saying that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And, hey, guys, I want to tell you an encouraging story. Jesus took his disciples, and the first time he asked them straight up who he is, he took them amidst a bunch, right? He set a table in the midst of his enemies, and he said, come and eat here. Let's go over here. I'm not afraid of... This guy's temple, I'm not afraid of that guy's temple. I'm not afraid of that temple over there. Who do you say that I am? And he reveals it there in the midst of a bunch of no-gods. We go on, verse 28. And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Now, the opinions of the disciples here at this point echo who? We've heard this before, haven't we? It's very interesting. These are the guys who are with Jesus all the time. And he says, who do people say I am? And their answer is all of those people who follow Herod. Remember Herod? At the beginning of the story, Herod thinks, oh, well, he's either Elijah or a prophet or he's John. Many Palestinian Jews believe that the prophets in the Old Testament had ceased. And so calling him a prophet is actually giving him some honor. But it was not radical enough to grasp the true identity. Well, I, I see him. I see him, but he, he's walk, he looks like a tree walking around. I see Jesus, but he kind of looks like Elijah. I see him, but he kind of looks like John. This is exactly like the blind guy. The blind guy gets his sight, and at first, what does he see? Trees walking around. That's weird. And it, it's the same thing. They see Jesus, but they don't see Jesus. They see, but they don't see clearly. Verse 29 and 30. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered them, 
answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about this. Then, as if it were with a second touch, Jesus faces the disciples themselves with this question. Now, at last, their eyes are at least a little open. They have understood about the loaves, finally. (laughs) Right? Multiple times. Don't you understand about the loaves? Don't you understand about the loaves? (sighs) No. Okay, what about now? What about now? Okay, 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 I see. I see you. I see. You're the Messiah. I get it. You're the Messiah. Yeah, that's not all he is, though. What's it say in John, or um, not John 1, 1. This is Mark. What does it say in Mark chapter 1, verse 1? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does the guard say at the very end after Jesus is crucified? Certainly this was the Son of God. What did two demons call him? Oh, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the Most High. So what you have here, right? I love this. All the like, you're so excited. You're like, oh, they finally, they don't even come close to getting it. They're like, we see you, but you kind of look like David. We see you, but we don't really see you. You look like a tree walking around. Right? Calling him the Messiah is what? They don't call him the divine son of God. They don't say, well, yeah, clearly, because you can tell bushes and trees and water what to do, clearly you're the one who made it all. They still don't see. And so we have to temper our joy and excitement at this point. Because I'm, you're like, oh, finally, right? I want so much to have relief for these guys because they just don't get it, and they still get it, but not really. Christ, Messiah, means anointed one. It, 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 they're saying something much like the other people calling him a prophet. They're calling him a Messiah, and that's the son of David. That's the person who's going to come and put everything right. But that's it. That's as far as they're willing to go. They see a king, but he's a fuzzy, unclear king. There are different views about the Messiah in Jesus' time, but they all revolved around an earthly deliverance and an earthly kingdom. We've covered this extensively. What are they all waiting for? They're waiting for somebody who's like David, who has all of his warriors. He's going to go and teach everybody a lesson about what it means to fear the real God. They see him, but he looks like a tree walking around. He looks like David walking around. They still don't get it. Their vision is blurry. They need a deeper touch. They need a fuller revelation. But if they go proclaiming Jesus as the anointed one now, it is going to hasten what? The cross. And they don't get that. They don't understand. What we're going to see now is he has to keep telling them, listen, you guys, I go up to Jerusalem one more time, there's only one way out. And it's death. So please, be quiet. Because you're starting to get it, and if you go spouting off the fact that you think I'm the Messiah, people are going to come and the trouble is going to start earlier than I need it to because I still need you to understand something. I still need to touch you again and heal you again and give you more. More comprehension, more understanding, more me. And if you go killing me now, you won't get any more me. That's what this, this whole story turns now. He's like, okay, okay, all right, Man, I, I thought I was going to have to feed another large crowd or something. So you guys see. Okay, you see, but you don't see clearly. So now let's go further afield. Let's go further apart. And I'm going to now start to tell you very specifically who I am and what I'm going to do. We always have to remember. We always have to remember this is before Pentecost. This is as much as they can understand. Any person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, this is as much as they can understand. Maybe they'll be like, okay, well, he's, uh, 
I see him, but he's just a really good moral teacher. I see Jesus, but he's just a really like dignified, hippie way ahead of his time. He just wants to love everybody. <laughs> the sandal-wearing hippie. He just lives in the woods. Doesn't bother anybody. He heals people. Right? What, without the Holy Spirit, this, this is as far as you're going to get. They're gonna, he's going to take them further, and they're going to get all the way to the cross, and what are they going to do there? They're going to run away like a bunch of scaredy little chickens. We all would. This is as far as you, right? You know people and you're like, hey, yeah, I gave them a Bible. They don't, they don't really read it. I'm not really sure what they need. I think they just, you know, if they just stopped drinking, if they just stopped doing drugs, if, if, right, if they just did this and they did that and they did a little reform, what they need is a little order in their life. You know what they need is they need to get up early on Sunday morning and go to church. That really helps people, you know, because everybody else is sleeping. It seems super sacrificial. There, there is a, a point in which people get to a certain understanding and they can't get any farther unless the Holy Spirit comes. And, and that's in this story. What, in the end, what, I'm just dying for these guys to get to Pentecost. I'm tired for them. And I still know they got another eight chapters to go. <laughs> it's like, okay, you see Jesus, but you don't see him clearly. Right? We're going to go back to what? What? We bring people to whom? Jesus. We beg him to save them. Now, they can sit at his feet all day long, but until he crosses that divide with, by his spirit and reveals himself to not just be a Messiah, but to be the Son of God, to be the only Lord, to be the only Lord over against every other principality, until that happens for people, there's no hope for them. This is why we should be about the business of the kingdom. But I'm going to set that aside for a moment because there's actually something more personal here than that. In your life right now, in your life, think, imagine, you're sitting at your kitchen table, you're sitting on your couch, you're sitting in your car, you're sitting on the edge of your bed. And what does Jesus ask you? Right? This, is, this is you here. You're the blind person. He's saying, who, who do people say that I am? Right? And we're like, ooh, Okay, I can tell you, right? I took a comparative religion class in college, so I can tell you who Jesus is. I can tell you the Sunday school vanilla pop fizz answer. Right? Jesus is God. Jesus is love. See how I passed? See how I passed that? Now, if you're as arrogant as I am, you're like, oh, I know the answer to this question. Who's Jesus? Oh, well, Edward says this. I'll quote some Calvin. Nice. Just to show that I'm not like a super hardcore conservative, I'll sprinkle a little Keller in there. You're like, yeah, I'll tell you what everybody thinks. Right? I can articulate all kinds of opinions. But imagine sitting at that dinner table, the couch, and he asks you full in the face, he looks at you and he says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Well, well, well can, we, can we talk about what Keller said? <laughs> awkward. It can get awkward. This is the point. Who do you, who do you say that Jesus is? Not who does your pastor say he is. Not who does your textbook say he is. Not who does your theology books say he is. Who do you say he is? Does it align with what he says about himself? 
This is where the Bible studying and church going and Christian worldview leads. This is what it leads to. This is what I was talking about this morning in the confession. The personal question. He takes you aside and he looks at you and he says, who do you say that I am? Are his current disciples still as blind as his former disciples? Who do you say Jesus is? When, when, when you like to think, do you like to think of him as simply a great human teacher? Would you prefer him as a Superman figure strong enough to rule the world and to exile all the bad and dangerous stuff that hurts your feelings? Is he just a cosmic magician able to zap all the world's problems into shape? Is he an apist populist wearing a hat that says, make heaven great again? <laughs> That's what we want. He's a strong, look, look at him, man. He just, with all that swagger, he tweets out whatever he wants. Gets everybody going. It's red hat. Make him make heaven great again. Could you imagine? You're sitting there amidst your idols. You're on your couch, and there, where the altar of your own hedonism sits, the TV, the wall of games, all the movies. You're on the edge of your bed that has become to you an altar of your own pleasure. At the table where you stress over money and image and social standing, stuffing your face and overflowing the goblet of self-gratification. There you are. Right? Immense Pan and Bale and Caesar in the car that you shouldn't have bought because you can't afford it, in the midst of the altars to all of your Bales, all your Pans, all your Caesars, amidst all your moral failures, all the outward expressions of your heart, the pile of your spiritual fruit or lack thereof. This is the question. This is the only question. Who do you say Jesus is? Are we prepared to have all the false answers of our culture challenged by the actual Jesus? Because we're turning now into a section of Mark that should and ought to get real uncomfortable for everybody in this room. Who do you say he is? And, 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 and does it line up? Is it going to line up with what he says about himself? I, I, I go into this next section with fear and trembling. Are we prepared to have the lies, lies that we believe about him? Are we prepared to have ourselves challenged by his redefined notion of what lordship and what messiahship and what service looks like? Are you prepared by the call coming in the next section to follow him in the risky vocation of the cross? Are you prepared for that? Don't just come back here next week glibly. Who do you say he is? Now, okay, you'll sit down, you'll give me the textbook answer. But let, let's follow each other around for a week, and let's see who we act like he is. Because that's what talks. What you do and don't do. What you say and don't say. Who you help and don't help. How you treat your wife and your children. How you treat your coworkers. How often you go to the word of God. Right? Who do you say he is? Show me. Show each other. Show your wife, show your husband, show your kids, show the world. Who he is is the most important question that you'll ever be asked. Are, are you prepared for the answer? I have fear and trembling at this part. Because up till now, what is it? He's, been, he's feeding some crowds, heal some people, throw some demons out. He's going to sit down now, and he's going to take us aside, and he's going to intimately tell us exactly who he is and what he expects. And I pray, I pray, because he is a merciful and gracious God, that we are prepared for the answer. 
Father, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you for the hard truth of scripture. We thank you for the revelation of who Christ is and what he came here to do. We know that in Isaiah, it says that every anxious heart, every fearful knee, every hurt and, and, and frightened person will be healed, will be saved at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord God, for those of us who know him, would draw nearer to him, that we would go further aside with him, that we would not fear him and not fear his answers, but that, Lord God, that we would... They would eat and drink what he has to say, that we would draw near to him and cling to him and love him and serve him as he has loved and served us. We thank you for your son, and we pray, Lord God, that you would prepare our hearts and our ears and our eyes for the message that's coming throughout the rest of Mark. And I pray, Lord God, that it would lead to the joy of our salvation. Amen.